From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Tyler J. Kelly about his new book, Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways. Nature doesn't need us or care about us, and it's going to be fine. But if we are obsessed with holding, let's say, a particular moment in time, like the planet was in balance and we want it to stay just like 1900, that will never succeed and we will fail utterly at that. But I think the planet's always been changing. The rivers have always been changing. Plants and animals have always been thriving, dying, going extinct. And certainly we put our thumb on the scales in a huge way over the last century. But to me, there's something sort of like paternalistic to think that we can destroy the planet or destroy nature. I think it's going to be fine. It might not be a fine place for us to live, but there's going to be plenty of happy plants and animals. Nature, ecology, water, and what the infrastructure of the future holds for our changing world. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Tyler J. Kelly, whose new book, Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways, is out now. It chronicles centuries of water-based infrastructure as America expanded west and had to solve the problem of water. The problem's only gotten more complicated as global warming has produced more erratic and extreme weather that is no longer managed effectively by the country's mostly outdated infrastructure. We talk about that, what the future might hold, and Tyler J. Kelly's general outlook about the changing world. Here's the conversation. So, Tyler, I, I want to start by just talking about uh, the the concept of water and what's going on with it in the grander context of our environmental situation kind of terrifies me. And so I know... Uh, like one of the things that's haunted me for years is one of the last lines in the big short, which talks about how Michael Burry's next venture after shorting the bond market was investing in water. And I think about that and it gives me goosebumps every time I rewatch that movie. So I want to just start by uh, reading where you are with it. Basically, how terrified are you about the future of water? Well, um, so there's two sides to this. And I really only can credibly talk about one side at the moment, which is, you know, east of the 100th Meridian, Essentially, there's too much water. And west of the 100th Meridian, there's not enough. Um, and so you in Nebraska straddle that. So you can go to western Nebraska, and you're going to be talking to people who don't have enough water and will not have enough going forward. And on the other side, you know, in Omaha, um, Plattsmouth, you know, Niobrara, that area, you're having too much, and you're going to continue to have too much. So I guess terrified I am not. But... Can we continue to do things the way we have been doing them? No. And I think we have to look at the last century of sort of development, agriculture, industry, and say, okay, you know, we kind of got what we got while the getting was good. And it's not going to stay like that. We're not going to be able to keep doing that. We can survive and thrive in an environment with more water or an environment with less water. I mean, we as like America... But we're going to have to rethink some things. We're going to have to give up some things. We're not going to be able to assume everything can be just the way it was, I guess, is is my answer. Well, yeah, that, I mean, those are things where it, it's tough. It, it feels like there's a lot of well, the political conversation right now is how do you convince people – both in power and the people who vote for the people in power to accept change, right? And so your book deals with that a lot. So we, we will get to some of that, but let's maybe put a pin in it. I want to I want to go back um, just and talk about your relationship with water, to water in general. So like growing up, did you did you go to the ocean? Did you go on to the Mississippi Mississippi River, or what what was your relationship with water as a kid? Yeah, I grew up in Minneapolis, and so I would go down by the Mississippi River, and Minneapolis is on very high ground on these bluffs. So I didn't really have a sense of the water as a trade route or as sort of a flood threat, um, you know, which is what I talk a lot about in my book. But I was aware that there was this big giant river here that, you know, kept going to the sea. Um, I think I really sort of started to understand what these rivers were up to and, you know, what the Army Corps of Engineers was up to on the rivers when I started taking kind of camping trips, like boat trips down the river where we kind of camp on the bank at night and we would pass through these lock and dams and going through the lock and dams. This is when I was, you know, older, like in college and stuff, I began to realize, okay, someone has built these structures one after another proposing to sort of manage, wrangle, control 
this massively powerful natural force and sort of the ambition and the hubris of that really struck me. I think that's when I really started to understand um, sort of how fascinating this could be. Yeah, it's it's was it something for you where I assume I think a lot of people when they're kids and they start to learn about sort of the the structures or like the government is in charge of something. You there's you start with this sort of naive optimism that okay, like they've got it all under control. That things are they're being managed with the right people in charge. They're going to figure it out. What was it? What was the moment for you where that uh, facade maybe started to uh, you know dissipate? I think you know as a kid, I think I thought that the river that I beheld was natural because, you know, the water flowed, there were trees on the bank and it looks like a river. Right. So I think for me, the real revelation was when I realized how unnatural most of our rivers are, you know, to what extent their shape and direction and course has been changed by dikes and dams and levees. So it, it, it was more a matter of, okay, wow, we are living in a really unnatural environment. And it, it took some it took some sort of research, I guess, for me to realize that. Well, so maybe let's go and paint that picture. So for people who haven't read the book, I mean, what what did America look like before all the water management that you're talking about, before things became sort of the unnatural landscape you were describing? Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to say it is the rivers moved around. They changed their course. They flooded vast swaths of land on a semi-annual basis. Um, you know, they would jump around and wash out a town here or, you know, take away the waterfront of one town and put it over in the next county. There's really great accounts of this in uh, Mark Twain's life on the Mississippi, which for me is sort of the coincidental description of the uncontrolled rivers of the past. And I think the rivers as Twain beheld them were more or less the way they had always been. The shapes are constantly changing. It's completely unpredictable. It's completely alive and dynamic. It's really hard to site a business or a town or a bridge or a railway or anything like that anywhere near these big alluvial rivers like the Missouri, like the Mississippi, um, the lower parts of the Illinois, the Arkansas, because of how dynamic they are, how much they're changing. And so these these vast sort of floodplain lands, people farmed them, but, you know, really they were at the river's mercy. Yeah, I, I like the inclusion of Twain throughout the book. And it, it's interesting to me when you think about the foundation of some of our American art culture that you've got essentially Twain and Melville, and they're both obsessed with water, you know, whether it's Twain's nonfiction or it's even Huck Finn and then Moby Dick. I mean, did, did uh, it sounds like Twain was someone who, you know, influenced you in some way. Was it was Melville as well? Did you ever uh, do the Moby Dick journey and uh, read that whole thing? Oh, yeah, I did. I have read the whole thing, and I love that book. You know, it'd be interesting to wonder whether or not that book has anything to do with my work. I haven't thought that through. I am a big reader, and I love that book. I think something that Melville does so well in Moby Dick is proposes to tell sort of like the story of everything, you know, mm -hmm. the grand story of the entire human condition in, you know, one fairly simple, you know, journey out from Nantucket to get some whales. And, you know, you're out on the sea it's kind of a simple setup and that he weaves into this one narrative, all these, you know, insightful, brilliant, strange, creative, um, and sort of universal truths about what it's like to be a person. And I, I admire that tremendously. And that style of writing, I guess, um, again, the ambition, and I would love to be able to do something like that. And I wouldn't ever compare my book to, to Melville or Moby Dick. Yeah, I, I, Moby Dick was a book for me. It just, uh, I feel like it rewired my brain. It just made me see everything, think about things differently. And I think just on a, on a thematic level, one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, Moby Dick has this theme running through it, basically where there's the hubris of man. Interestingly, on you know, in this oil, uh, you get the, you get sort of the the element of the oil industry as it's developing through mm -hmm. whaling, but Ahab's hubris and thinking that he can beat nature at something, and then ultimately he fails in the you know the ending where the waves roll on as they did for thousands of years before. So sort of that insignificance of humans versus nature. But I mean, in the in the current climate of environmental collapse and biodiversity collapse, it almost feels like uh, I wonder sometimes if Melville's basic idea there is becoming out 
outdated if humans have found a way to conquer nature ultimately in a self-defeating sort of way as well. Uh, you know, like, do, do you think that does, does nature always win? Have we uh, have we found a way to kill everything? I guess how how pessimistic are you about environmental collapse uh, in the context of all this? I guess there's two ways of looking at that. I'm not a pessimist. I don't think by nature. But, you know, nature is winning. But the question is, you know, is it Asian carp and rats and invasive trees and kudzu and knotweed and all these other plants that we profess not to like? You know, biodiversity may be diminishing, but certain species are thriving tremendously. So in terms of plants, animals, the natural world, it's going to be fine. It's just not going to look the way it looked. And I think, you know, some fragile species like I studied these um these pallid sturgeon up on the missouri river you know and there's really as far as i can do nothing nothing anyone can do to save these things like they're going extinct and that's you know that's going to happen but is there going to be a sort of a weirdly changed natural world without them i guess it depends on like how you think of nature in my opinion and you know maybe maybe we disagree on that tom um but it's like nature doesn't need us or care about us and it's going to be fine. But if we are obsessed with sort of, I think holding, let's say a particular moment in time, like let's say we think 1900, the planet was in balance and we want it to stay just like 1900, that will never succeed. And we will fail utterly at that. But I think the planet's always been changing. The rivers have always been changing. Plants and animals have always been thriving, dying, going extinct. And certainly we put our thumb on the scales in a huge way over the last century. Um, but to me, there's something sort of like paternalistic to think that we can destroy the planet or destroy nature. Um, I think it's going to be fine. It might not be a fine place for us to live, but there's going to be plenty of happy plants and animals. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with writer Tyler J. Kelly, whose new book, Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways, is available now wherever you get books. That's one of the things that I guess is confusing about some of the politicization of uh, of the environment in general, which is there's that self-defeating element in some of the fights that are happening. But, I mean, you've got a line – I think it's from the introduction. It's early in the book. It says, where an ecologist sees biodiversity, a farmer sees waste and lost opportunity. And that, that seems like a pretty big ideological problem uh, and divide that's going on in the world right now and certainly something that – in the face of potentially collapse of biodiversity, you know, it's not going to be great for farming viability necessarily to have that kind of divide. So is that something that can be bridged uh, in order to have something that does help humans and is a future where maybe, you know, some animals are happy and then also humans can be as well? Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it is something bridged. And part of what I wanted to get at there is it's a matter of like approaching people on their own terms, you know? So if you're talking to a farmer um, and you want to convince a farmer to farm in, you know, a floodplain that doesn't have a levee, right? Land that's vulnerable to flooding, which is something as a policy matter, you know, I think should be considered critical for anyone who's managing the, the, the lower Missouri River right now. You have to come to a farmer and say, listen, here's my proposal for how you can, you know, maintain your yield, how you can, you know, grow maximal crops and make your money and be productive because those are the things that farmers care about and they like deer and they like trees but their bottom line is their bottom line and so i think if you approach a farmer and say listen we've looked at this if your land is flooded x amount of the time you'll be able to get you know your crops your plant your soybeans by june 1st and you'll be able to harvest uh, a really good crop by the end of august because the river will you know fertilize your lands i think you can make the proposition but you don't approach a farmer saying let's save the little birdies over here because they don't care about that. So I think it's a matter of speaking in the terms in which the person you're trying to convince, and this goes to our whole partisan divide question in the country right now, I think you have to meet someone where they are. And I think if you do that and talk to them in terms that they understand and identify things that they value and talk to them about, okay, how, okay, okay, things are changing. We all know things are changing. We all know we got to do things differently. Here's how we can do it where you can still get what you want to get out of it. Almost, you know, not quite maybe like it used to be, but but close. And I, I, I recognize what you value. Um, and here we're going to work together. And I don't think I don't see those arguments being made. and I don't see those conversations being had, really. 
How, how did you come to that conclusion that essentially environmentalists need to speak the language of commerce or economics? I'm, I'm not saying, I guess, you know, people need to speak each other's languages. I, I didn't mean to say the burden is all on the environmentalists by any means, but whoever's trying to convince whoever needs to come and speak their language. I guess by talking to a lot of both um, and talking to a lot of engineers, a lot of um, hydrologists, ecologists, scientists, these people speak really different languages and they have different values, but I don't think their goals are necessarily incompatible. But, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers, and I am not, I don't think by any means dismissive or even negative in regard to the Corps in my book, but, you know, they are not known for their, you know, intuitive and accessible communication style. And so I think when they go and to try to propose these things, like, for instance, proposing these levy setbacks to the farmers, I think there are much better ways they could do it. And that's more, I guess it becomes more of like, a sociological problem, you know, who studies the art of communication? I don't know, not not government engineers or bureaucrats, certainly, right? So there are better ways to talk to people about the things that need to change. And I speak in my book about um, the way they do it in the Netherlands. And uh, it, it seems like they're so much better at it. And I know it's a cliche to say the Netherlands is better at us than everything. And there's a lot of lessons from the Netherlands that I don't, I don't think we can apply to the United States. But for instance, they created this kind of like a game where different where any any citizen could go into this little game and propose like a flood mitigating scenario like what if my house was floating what if we put this on stilts what if we took the levee down and had a park what about you know uh, a bridge like that and we pulled the abutments back and the people could kind of play around with this game and I think it gave them a real sense of like agency and control over the change that needed to occur and also in within the game, I think was a, a lot of information about the risks. So it's like, look, we have this increased risk here because of climate change, rising rivers, storm surges. We got to do something about it. But we, the government, are soliciting you, the people, to propose like, OK, we all are facing this together. What can we do to mitigate this risk? What can we change? How can we adjust? And because people could sort of plug in in this little game their own solutions and actually propose them to the minister whoever was in charge, I think that really helped get people to buy in to sort of support this change that had to be made. And that project that I'm referring to in the Netherlands ultimately um, took, you know, bulldozed 34, relocated 34 people's homes, uh, took like 100 businesses, hundreds of acres of land. So, you know, that's a really unpopular thing to do, right? Taking people's property, taking people's homes, taking people's land. And, it, and they, you know, they knew it had to be done, but it's like, how can you make this palatable, right? And at least in the Netherlands, there's people who study multi-actor decision-making and stuff like that, who write whole papers and analyses of how you can successfully get all these different groups to make a decision together. Well, that, that seems like a... I wonder how compatible that approach would be in the American system, where it seems like we, right now we have especially kind of these fractured worlds that people live in where... It's hard to get the whole country to acknowledge even what some of the problems are. Uh, and then and in particular in the environment, it seems like it's it's weirdly bogged down into the, well, are humans to blame? And I guess somehow whether humans to blame, whether humans are to blame or not, weirdly, uh, I don't know, that inhibits some of the conversations about what to do for or what to do to push things forward in a productive way. So, I mean, do you think uh, that approach that the Netherlands did of involving people, I mean, could could we replicate that? And is, is I mean, it, it sounds like that connects to what you were talking about before, which is you have to find a way to talk to everybody in the same, or I guess in their language, but then to get them to agree about problems and solutions. And, I'm, you know, I, I, it seems like the, the recurring theme here is I'm, I've become pessimistic and you're trying to tell me, no, 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 I think, I think we can figure this out. But how do, we, how, do you, how do you replicate something like that for America and what changes would, would have to be part of it? Yeah, I mean, so I, I was really interested in this institution called the Mississippi River Commission, which is sort of uh, part private engineers, civilian engineers, and part Army Corps of Engineers, you know, government. And it's run by the Corps, so it's, you know, government controlled. But they do these um, meetings twice a year, four meetings um, in the spring, four meetings in the fall, where they pull up to all these small town boat docks and boat ramps and um, all along the lower Mississippi, really. And anyone can come into these meetings and give what's called testimony. So you can just stand up there and complain about whatever you want. Or, you know, if you're a really slick engineer with a from an affluent levy board, you can go up there and ask for more money or ask for leniency on this 
permit thing or whatever you want. But what I, I went to a bunch of these meetings and, and met a lot of the people involved. But what I realized is that they, they had this relationship, the locals and the, the federal government, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers, people who will go straight back to Congress after this is done and make policy recommendations because the commission comes here and they listen. And their job is just to sit there and get, you know, a lot of it's just haranguing, you know, but their job is to sit there. Their job is to eat lunch with these people. Their job is to listen. Their job is to talk. And then their job is to go bring this back uh, to Congress to the, I think is so important. And a, a body that is sort of in some ways above parochial interests, like from states, from counties, um, from towns, but isn't the distant bureaucracy, you know, in DC. It's people that come to your town and listen to what you have to say. And if you go to those meetings, everybody says, this has changed. Everybody says there's more water, there's more rain. And so you can get bogged down in the cause, but does everyone agree there's more water? Yes. And does everyone agree something should be done about it? Yes. So if you really wanted to sort of gather or garner consensus, I think that's the place to start, you know? Okay, there's more water, we all see it. No one's, no one's arguing with it. So, I mean, you could, you could talk to someone who thinks it's a macro climatic cycle, which I do not believe, but I could see in this room with, these, with, these, with all these people together talking how you could take that person and say, okay, that's what you believe, we don't care. Let's talk about a solution. What can we do to reduce your risk? Because you know that your risk is increasing, and so do I, so do we all. Like the Tennessee Valley Authority is the only other example I'm aware of, of this sort of basin-based um, sort of management, semi-public-private agency. And I feel like these, these things have been really successful. The Mississippi River Commission, um, Tennessee Valley Authority, and actually the Missouri River Authority was proposed, um, but it was uh, thwarted by the Bureau of Reclamation and the Corps of Engineers in the early 40s. So, you know, imagine how different the Missouri would be if there was something like a Missouri Valley Authority. I'm talking today with Tyler J. Kelly, whose new book, Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways, is available now wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. You can follow us on social media. You can use hashtag Riverside Chats and join the conversation. We'll continue it after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstream's everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Today I'm talking with Tyler J. Kelly, whose new book, Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways, is available wherever you get books. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, I think it's interesting to go back to 
the history of water in America that you track throughout the book as well as some of the more contemporary things. So one of the things I liked was uh, you have the kind of a – not necessarily an alternative story of Lewis and Clark but sort of a, a broader contextualization of what exactly Lewis and Clark were doing um, beyond just sort of the benevolent explorer narrative. So, I mean, can you talk about uh, the westward expansion and sort of how that relates to the story of American water? Sure, yeah. And I, I wanted to go to their journals and, you know, get as primary sources as possible. And it, it's obvious if you read Jefferson's instructions to uh, Lewis, who was his secretary, on the very origins of this core of discovery, I forget what they call the mission, that it's it's about, you know, acquiring land from Native Americans. It's about, you know, assessing resources, extractable resources, timber, coal, um, you know, and assessing navigation. So it is mercantile and colonial uh, in its inception. And I and I think, you know, that is obvious to anyone who reads the founding documents. And so I think the Judeo-Christian approach, I go back to the book of Genesis, um, you know, God's first words uh, to man, I think, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So that's the Judeo-Christian worldview that Jefferson, you know, never questioned in all his enlightenment. Neither did Lewis, nor Clark, nor the explorers that came after them, you know. And these people created the United States, the federal government, the Corps of Engineers. And, you know, they had their limitations, very severe limitations um, in terms of who they thought you know, should be citizens of the country, who they thought, you know, were intelligent, um, what races they thought were superior, right? Uh, and we've been talking a lot about that in our culture. And so I think it's just important to step back and realize these are the people who created this system and it reflects their values. And this is still on the ground today, uh, these values and this system, right? Uh, this set of infrastructure designed to foster subduing the earth, commerce, and so I guess that brings me to the end of the book where I talk about, okay, let's not rebuild everything just as it was. Let's first look at, do these structures serve the purposes that we want them to serve? Do they reflect the values of today? And do they consider the climate that is coming and is already here? Um, because a lot of the assumptions these structures make about the climate are also outdated, I think. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of encouraging language along those lines with Biden's infrastructure uh, proposal. And also the water resources bill of 2020 had a lot of interesting stuff in it uh, that basically says, you know, let's rethink a lot of these things. So rethinking it, what are some of the things that we might see in a rethought sort of way of dealing with water and maybe a, a move away from subduing the environment instead to try to coexist with it? I'll bring it back to the Missouri River, and this was in the 2020 bill, was discussing, you know, can you pull the levees back from the river? Can you give the river more room? Uh, can you let it flood some more of its historical floodplain? And the bill didn't talk about how to do this. But again, if you could pull the levees back, give more room to the river and still farm it, um, you could reduce the flood risk tremendously. And the sad thing about the Missouri River is this has been known for a long time. So really a lot of the destruction of 2019, for instance, could have been avoided if proposals from 2011, say after the 2011 flood had been heated, you could have pulled those levers, levees back. You could have avoided a lot of that destruction in 2019, but, but it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't done. The political will wasn't there. Um, and they rebuilt just exactly the way things were and they got clobbered. Um, and you know, you all know on the Missouri river getting clobbered over and over again. So, that's a very simple, very kind of literal rethink. You just set the levees back um, and there'd be tremendous benefit. And even that is not at all simple to accomplish, right? Well, and so beyond that, I mean, so you have kind of multiple issues there, right? Which is people don't want to give up their land, right? That's one of the central uh, holdups to actually doing something like that. So do you feel like the political willpower maybe is there to try to push for it? But is the the acceptance among people who would have to be the ones, uh, you know, giving up part of what they own in order to do that? Do you, do you feel like that's shifting uh, as time has gone and more flooding has just happened? I mean, 
would people would accept that if you paid them fair market value for their land, which would probably make the whole thing inconceivably expensive. So not really is a simple answer to your question. You know, that's that's my guess. guess my whole sort of answer to people say, well, there's all this infrastructure bills. There's all this infrastructure talk. And, you know, they're doing this in the Senate and this in the House. And it's these trillions. And so no one's really talked about the hard decisions that have to go along with this. You know, um, we can argue about how much money we should spend and how much taxes we should or shouldn't raise and what is or isn't infrastructure. But, you know, how do you convince someone in Iowa to give up some of their land? That's, you know, <laughs> that's a really hard question to answer and no one's tried to answer it yet. And it, it comes back, I think, to these communication things we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see that in any of the current uh, infrastructure legislation, infrastructure conversation. No one's there yet. So it's, it remains to be seen. Do you right? have a, like, if you if you were in charge, do you have a, a way that you would approach it beyond, I mean, it sounds like money's a maybe. If there isn't money, can you persuade them? Could I persuade them? Um there's a guy named Lester Gooden who I wrote about in the book, and he farms a piece of uh, floodplain in southeast Missouri, and it does not have a levee. And the river washes over his land semi-annually. He's able to plant soybeans in uh, late April, early June, and he gets a terrific crop off this land. And he is a farmer's farmer. He loves his soybeans. He loves his herbicide. You know, he is he wants to maximize his yield on this ground and he loves every single bean and every single acre of this land. But he was willing to not rebuild the levee when it failed in uh, the, I think mid century, mid 20th century, and to take some of his acres out of production and plant trees. So he planted trees along the upstream bend of this piece of land to prevent the heavy scour of the river from, you know, crashing, onto his ground and tearing it up, turning it into sand dunes and scour holes, which is what you get um, when you sort of have the unrestrained river crashing onto your land. So he gave up land, he planted trees, the trees grew up, and the trees serve as a natural buffer protecting his land from the corrosive, erosive force of the river, and yet allowing the river to deposit the nutrients. So you could make the case that flooding and farming can coexist, but you know, the farmers would have to give up a little something, but their risk would be reduced. And farmers understand risk. They understand risk reduction. And so I think if you presented this this give and take, this cost and benefit to them, they would understand it and they would be able to, you know, to buy, to, to, to go for it, I think. So, I mean, one of the questions I have, which is kind of interesting, maybe it's diff uh, maybe it's impossible to answer just because we don't know in the in the world as it heats what exactly how like how much it will heat and what all the causes and effects of that will be but what i mean a hundred years from now the midwest presumably can do some of these things that you're talking about right it can it can manage rivers differently it can manage water in a way that understands what water will be doing uh as a, as a sort of a difference from what it had done in the past what what do you think it, it's going to look like uh, you know not not like in 10 years but decades maybe a century from now if if things are taken into account, uh, what what does the Midwest look like? How has it changed from what it looks like today? And you're talking about the Midwest or the whole country? I guess the whole country. I mean, it's all it's all water and and you know it's all connected somewhere, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in the west of the hundredth meridian, there's going to be a lot less agriculture because it seems like that's going to be the first thing to go. All those irrigation projects um, set up by Bureau of Reclamation in the early 20th century. A lot of that, I think, is totally unsustainable. So less agriculture in the West, that land goes back to great plains or desert, whatever it was before. Better flood management, you know, water management in the middle of the country, uh, as we've been saying. And I think a lot of the coast, New Orleans, Miami, New York, either, you know, we're going to have to retreat from some of those cities or we're going to have to put some of those cities up on some type of you know, stilts, or you're going to have to put a wall around those cities like they've done in New Orleans. So you know, the, the coastal cities, some of them are really, really vulnerable. And so the sea is going to be higher all along that coast, Atlantic and Gulf, especially, I think, um, and, and in California, too. So, you know, adaptation, these resilient cities, people are talking about that, um, giving 
more room to the rivers all through the Midwest to accommodate this increased water. Uh, and then using less water in the West because there won't be as much, right? Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it looks like to me. So this, this is an expansive topic. You can go so many different directions. Your book merges a lot of policy with history, with contemporary anecdotes and stories. So I want, I'm curious how you started to write a book like this and how did it evolve as you went from the basic idea, which I assume was kind of the subject, uh, to then the way that you sort of combined all of this together in a functional and easy-to-read book? Yeah, I, I, I first just tried to figure out what was happening right now the most sort of dynamic situations anywhere on any river in the middle of the country i knew i was focusing on mississippi river and and tributaries um so then i found you know all these kind of interesting flooding scenarios levee flood control scenarios and all these kind of crumbling lock and dams and questions about commerce and shipping and trade and barges uh and and so i got these two sort of areas of interest right off well eventually and then I said, well, OK, no one wants to read a survey that jumps around to a million locations. So let's try to focus on one location, even one structure, let's say, and one group of people who are invested in that structure, whose lives and livelihoods depend on it. And let's zero in on that. Um, and hopefully that will sort of stand in for myriad examples of flooding and levees, myriad examples of locks and, and commerce and barges. And so um, I focused on the birds when you mattered floodway in Southeast Missouri, because I thought the sort of moral calculus there was so interesting. And the flood of 2011, when they blew that levee and flooded that land deliberately, the Army Corps of Engineers. And I ended up talking about one old lock and dam uh, in Southern Illinois and the giant futuristic mega lock and dam built to replace it. And then I got really interested later on in sediment, which is sort of um, one engineer described it to me as the Army Corps of Engineers is really good at managing water, but they're managing half the equation because all these rivers carry with them little bits of silt, sand and clay. And so what is this mysterious other part of these moving rivers that we sort of don't have a handle on? And yet things are happening with sediment. Problems are arising. Mistakes are being made. Um, and so that was where I went with the third section. I got really interested in these sort of three different sediment problems or sediment projects, one up on the Gavin's Point Dam between Nebraska and South Dakota, where the dam is literally filling up with dirt, with earth, with sand, creating all kinds of problems um, for people living upstream of that dam. Uh, Old River Control Structure down on uh, the lower Missi Mississippi, where, again, sediment is creating a problem by raising the bed of the river. And then down in Louisiana, where there's a really ambitious proposal from the state of Louisiana to divert Mississippi River water into these sinking marshlands and use the sediment in the river to rebuild the marshlands. So those became my three sections uh, in terms of structuring the book. And I tried to really tell the book through people. I tried to make it as interesting as possible and sort of have human beings who's, who care about these things be the way the reader sort of experiences the story, not me just sort of talking. Yeah, I, I like the, the people. It, it reminded me kind of of the Michael Lewis approach uh, to telling these stories that have a clear purpose, that are educational, but also have sort of the, the thrill of a human going through something that has some kind of inherent tension to it. So, I mean, did you have specific literary influences or journalistic influences that you were working from as you compiled it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, John McPhee and Ian Fraser are probably my two favorite writers, although they write in a very kind of first person voicey style, which I did not do um, in terms of like this sort of third person novelistic approach. I really like Tracy Kidder um, and some of his books. Uh, there's a really cool book by a sociologist. The book is called Evicted, and he did all this research and embedded himself in these um, communities in Milwaukee, but then was able to write the story in this fabulous novelistic way because he spent so much time with people that he could write it from their you know point of view, like a, like it reads like a novel. So that's what I aspire to, and I, I wouldn't again compare myself to any of these people, you know. But I, I you know I read a ton of nonfiction and fiction while I was writing the book, and and to me the techniques aren't that dissimilar. 
So like, what were some of the techniques that you found uh, that maybe you picked up from fiction and incorporated? I guess, I mean, thinking of a character as a character, you know, a person with, with a background and um, who has a motivation and who exists in a scene, in a setting, you know, and is active, you know, is doing something. And I tried to have characters, you know, who you'd know, you'd get to meet, they would be going somewhere, they'd be doing something, they would have a motivation. Uh, and that would sort of carry you through and from and to the sort of other pieces that I knew I needed to include that are more historical or more technical, um, more like ecological or geological. So I guess, you know, using the character to move the reader through the story. And I guess I trying to write in a simple, accessible voice. And I don't know if I always succeeded in, in doing that, but I didn't want it to be, you know, a book for engineers or a book for historians. You, leave so much out, you know, excluding things, I think is, is a real art. Uh, and I credit my editor, Jofi Ferrari Adler, at, uh, Avid Reader Press for helping me with this. But there's so many things that I'm interested in, and I think are interesting. But thinking of the reader going through the book, it's like, okay, you don't need to know this. This is too confusing. This is too complicated. Not to say the reader isn't smart, but just to say the reader wants to be on a a clear path, right? And that's what I tried to do. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with writer Tyler J. Kelly, whose new book is Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways. It's available now wherever you get your books. Now, I noticed uh, looking into you a little bit, looking at your website, that you've also made a documentary film called Following Seas. I wonder, could you compare maybe what's the process like of trying to write all these goals you just talked about for a nonfiction book but then what, how is it different? How is it similar? What can you do with a documentary nonfiction film as well? I mean, so for me, the process is very similar. Um, I did not do the sort of cinematography for the film uh, or the film editing, which are arts in and of themselves. But I was more in charge of reporting the film, interviewing everybody and putting a story together. Um, and so, again, it's sort of like, how do you get from one story that represents something about the characters, about the experience, something that's unique, something that's important, something that is relevant to, you know, what it means to be human or what it means to be, you know, living on this planet right now. And how do you move from one of those scenarios to the next in a fluid way? And that was the same challenge for the film as it was for the book. And you're talking about, somebody's life, somebody's story, things that they really did, things that happened to them. And, you know, you, when do you start the scene? And when do you end the scene? And how much can the viewer or the reader be satisfied with sort of a jumping in time or um, leaving a feeling of being left hanging? Or, you know, or is it satisfying? Is it adequately satisfying to sort of say, okay, we concluded this episode We'll skip ahead several years and we'll begin here. And those decisions were the, were the very same, I think, for, for the book and for the film. And I guess for me, I, don't, I really don't like telling people what to think. And I tried hard not to tell people what to think in the film or in the book. And so, you know, in the film, questions come up of like, are these good parenting decisions? You know, were these parents putting their children first or themselves first were they thinking of the children as a, a high priority or high enough priority and you can see like the, the comments people make the questions they ask that that the question was raised in the mind of the viewer and the viewer can come to their own conclusion but i didn't want to tell the viewer if i think oh they were good parents or they were bad parents i don't think that's my job as a as an artist as a filmmaker or storyteller to tell you what to think i want to give you the information and you can decide for yourself. And that's what I tried to do with the book, too. I did a little bit of kind of solutions stuff at the end of the book. But for me, that's really not what the story is. The story is telling you what's going on, getting you interested and engaged. And then you can you can think about it. You can decide what you think we should do after you've read the book. And hopefully the book gives you the tools to make an educated decision, have an educated opinion about, oh, here's what we should do. You know, here's what's going on. So, I mean, having worked in 
sort of the ambition of multiple forms of telling nonfiction stories. And I mean, in addition to that, you've written shorter works as well. But do you feel like there are certain stories that are more uh, that call for the visual approach as opposed to something like a book? I mean, like, why not make your book that you just wrote a documentary instead? That's a good question. My my wife, Araby Kelly, she's really the visual one. So I'll give her an idea and she's like, oh, no, that looks that looks really ugly. That that idea. We're not we would never want to do that. Or I'll tell her about something that I think is a marginal idea. And she'll say, oh, that's beautiful. We should film that. We should make that into a film. That sounds so beautiful. So I I probably am not qualified to say what looks good. It, it has to do with the way it looks. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really qualified to say what looks good on a screen versus what reads well um, on a page. I wanted to write a book. And so there was never any question of this being a film. There was never any sort of proposals or offers of anyone who wanted to, you know, really make it into a film. So for me, this was always a story that I was going to write. Um, and I, I didn't even put a picture in the book. So, you know, I, I thought my words have to do the job of telling someone what this stuff all looks like. We did include some maps because the geography is really confusing. Um, but, but I think, you know, Ideally, you would approach the subject and say, this could be a good film. This could be a good book based on what kind of access you have and what stuff looks like, um, how much time and money you have. The, the, the great thing about a book is you can I guess you can tell a film, too. You can go back in time and tell stuff that's already happened. But, you know, what can you see happen? To me, that's always the best and first question. What what's happening right now? What can you see happen in real time? Um, I'm so envious of people who make these films where you follow somebody around for a year and you have the time and money to do that. I would love to do that. You just, you, 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 you with someone who, you know, is onto something interesting, something that matters, something important, and you can just follow them around and just film their life. That, that way of doing that way of working, I would, I would love to do more of. Um, I don't know if I have, will ever have the money or time or sort of flexibility to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like we are in a time where documentary is becoming more mainstream than maybe it had been, uh, you know, at least a few decades ago. And we have certainly the the streaming advent makes it possible to do sort of long form exploratory series or mini series in a way that maybe you hadn't before. But I mean, do do you see yourself? And maybe it's too early since you just had a book come out, you know, a, a month ago or so. But I mean, do you do you know next? Do you want to try to chase after some kind of documentary? Do you want to do another book? Do you sort of know the subject you're going to explore going forward? I would like to do another book. I really enjoyed the process of shaping the story and reporting the story. And I alluded to it earlier. I'm interested in the dry half of the country. So I think that's where I'm going to head next. Try to find a story that I like that I could stick with for a long time that hasn't been already sort of done to death about the part of the country that is running out of water. Cause I feel like I have a handle now on the part of the country that has too much, but I don't really know what's going on. And the dry part, the drying part. Yeah. That seems like a good companion piece for what you just worked on. Um, so you can have uh, <laughs> holding back the river as one part of it, the, the wet part and then the dry companion, maybe, maybe do a trilogy ultimately or something. I don't know. Right. The disappearing river, the, the river that, the river that isn't anymore. Right. Something right. like that. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, I think this is probably a good point for us to wrap up. I'm curious, uh, where's a good place people can follow you to learn, I guess, about any of your potential upcoming projects, whether it's the next book or anything else, or just uh, to learn more about holding back the river itself? Yeah, I have a website, Tyler J. Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y.com. That's probably the best place to see anything I'm working on. Um, the book's available, uh, hopefully at your local bookstore. I know it's at Bookworm in Omaha. Um, I did an event with them earlier in the summer. They're stocking it. So first I would encourage anyone to look for it at their local bookstore, but it is, uh, available at simonandschuster.com, Amazon, um, probably everywhere books are sold. Yeah. Thanks for the local plug. That's uh, that's always good to have the book. The, the bookworm's a nice place. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, beyond that, thank you for talking to me, Tyler. This has been great. It's been uh, – I'm glad that you don't have – I started with a lot of pessimism, and you, you really talked me down, so I appreciate that. And, uh, thank you for talking to me in general. I really enjoyed it, Tom, and thank you for making it such a wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoy talking about literature and how to make work and, you know, not just, not just the issues. So I really appreciated your, your perspective and your, your curiosity when it came to all these things. Yeah, thank you.
That was Tyler J. Kelly, whose new book is Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways. It's out now wherever you get books. To close today's show, here is Tilda Swinton reading from Moby Dick. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though this pine tree shakes down its size like leaves upon this shepherd's head, yet all were vain unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Go visit the prairies in June, when for scores on scores of miles you wade knee-deep among tiger lilies. What is the one charm wanting? Water. There's not a drop of water there. Were Niagara but a cataract of sand, would you travel your thousand miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why, upon your first voyage as a passenger, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning. And still deeper, the meaning of that story of Narcissus who, because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of the conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. Also, remember, we're trying out a new feature here, a kind of letter to the editor where you can call in about what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Nobluck.